You're listening to Do South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. All right, a question for the dads out there. Later this week, we'll have our latest installment of About Dad Time. We're chatting about the holidays and presents and how you handle gifts. Is there such a thing as too many presents? Do you have to institute a present ceiling at your house? How do you handle presents? And what do you do if there are, privilege here, too many arriving? Share your thoughts with us, please. Do south at WUNC.org. For years, the story of migration in 20th century America has been defined by two historical movements. There's the Great Migration, when six million black Southerners moved to northern and midwestern states. Then there's the Dust Bowl exodus, when more than two and a half million residents of the Plains states headed west toward California. Far less discussed is the third mass migration story of our country from 20th century, when an estimated eight million rural residents left the upland south for the industrial cities of the Great Lakes. This was between the turn of the 20th century and 1969. The pattern of migration from Appalachia to the Midwest and back has been referred to as the Hillbilly Highway. A new book seeks to shed light on this essential and under-examined history. Max Fraser is an assistant professor of history at the University of Miami, Florida, and author of Hillbilly Highway, The Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class. Max, welcome to Do South. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about this word hillbilly right up front. You write extensively about it uh, in the book and also how loaded of a term it can be. Tell us a little bit about the history of hillbilly and how you seek to use it uh, in this text. I try in the book to be attentive to both ways in which that term can be used. On the one hand, the way it originated as a, as a slur, as a way of attacking and demeaning um, a population of, of poor people. And on the other hand, the way the term has been reclaimed by that population to describe uh, a sense of belonging, the way the migrants that I spoke to would use that term to describe their experiences or that of their family. Uh, traveling away from where they grew up uh, to these big Midwestern cities to to find work over the course of these decades. You do not have personal or familial ties to Appalachia, yet this migration was the topic of your dissertation and then this book, a decade-long project, I should note. What pulled you in? What, what drew me to this topic was... Uh, work that I did prior to beginning my dissertation when I worked as a journalist and spending time reporting about um, working class life in various parts of the country um, and in spending time uh, in the Midwest and in different cities in the Midwest, I I encountered something which I was unfamiliar with or a, a social experience I was kind of unfamiliar with, which was um, speaking to a lot of white working class families in uh, different parts of the industrial Midwest, discovering that many of them um, had roots in the South. Um, and I wasn't familiar with that. I wasn't really familiar with um, a history of uh, Southerners moving between Appalachia and the Midwest. You're talking about a lot of different threads, and there are a lot of different threads to to my eye that you're seeking to uh, chip away at and and discuss and analyze within this book. And one of them, 
that, that that's more pronounced are stereotypes and misconceptions. Uh, some that have long plagued poor white rural residents of Southern Appalachia would love to chat about misconceptions here for a couple of moments. What are some of the most troublesome ones that maybe you knew about going into this project, but also that you you uncovered and were reminded of time and time again? Well, I'd say if there was one dominant sort of overarching one, it was that that really drives a lot of the history that I write about. Um, it's this misconception that um, poor rural white Southerners are um, a kind of backwards, primitive people, disconnected from all industrial activity, modern commerce, really modern society in any way. It's a powerful um, uh, line of thought which describes the, the mountainous Appalachian region as totally sort of at a remove from modern society that goes all the way back to the late 19th century um, and, in, and in kind of shocking ways continues throughout uh, the decades of the mid-20th century that I am primarily focused on in my book and in some ways continues on uh, to this day. Um, I, I try uh, to go to great lengths in the book to um, correct that misconception by describing the way um, poor white Southerner, Southerners were quite familiar with many aspects of modern life when they moved north and urban industrial society when they moved north, but also felt really strong attachments to their rural homes. Building on that thread, one of the interesting distinctions within this book, and there are many, is is you note that Appalachian migrants were not as eager to leave and stay away from their their hometowns in the South, and they often returned to the South. In a nutshell, why? Well, the they they did what what dis, one of the distinguishing characteristics of this migration out of the South, as compared to say the more familiar Black Great Migration, and it's an obvious one when you think about it, is that up until the passage of national civil rights legislation in the 1960s. It's uh, politically, personally dangerous um, and, and in many ways politically undesirable for black Southerners to return to the South, right? So long as Jim Crow and the lynch mob continue to stalk the land. And so uh, it's much more the case for black Southerners leaving the region during these years that the migration to the North is a is a one-way exodus, is a real flight from the South. Um, but that's not the case for white Southerners. Um, again, for obvious reasons, because of a kind of racial skin privilege that they have. Um, they remain attached to family that hasn't left the region. They remain connected to rural lifeways and lifestyles and see their migration to the North as a as a kind of temporary um, experience, a way of earning enough in cash wages at an at an auto plant or a steel mill to be able to come home and uh, subsidize a life on the farm, say, or to buy a small plot of land that they couldn't afford otherwise. And um, so there's a, I think what you might describe as a, a, a identification with rural life and the rural South in particular, which is powerful for many migrants along uh, the Hillbilly Highway. 
Max Fraser is an assistant professor at the University of Miami, Florida. He's also the author of Hillbilly Highway, the Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class. Your guest here on Due South. Uh, let's build on kind of this impetus, this seed. Why were so many people, an estimated 8 million, somewhere between 6 and 10 million, just to kind of broaden the estimates out a little bit, but millions and millions of uh, poor white Southerners left during this time frame. Why, remind us, did they leave? Well, in a sense, they're responding to a kind of interrelated set of economic transformations which um, disrupt rural life in the rural South um, kind of totally over the first half of the 20th century. Um, these begin uh, with the rise of resource extractive industrialization, the rise of coal and other kinds of uh, resource intensive forms of industrial activity which put an acute pressure on land and on um, other kinds of more traditional livelihoods attached to the land. It uh, kind of vacuums up a rural population into um, different kinds of industrial employment activities in the South. And then as those industries go uh, boom and bust, sort of expel that um, new kind of rural working class into a much larger you know, kind of labor flow into the, um, you know, industrial economy of the Midwest, which has an almost limitless um, demand for more labor uh, power during these years, especially after the 1920s, when um, in the aftermath of World War I, there's a real uh, restriction of, of international immigration um, from the country's uh, in Southern and Eastern Europe that had supplied the majority of the industrial workforce in the Midwest up until then. And so white Southerners and black Southerners become um, the, uh, the labor supply um, for, the, for the booming uh, industrial economy of the Midwest during these years. Another area where rural Southerners are overlooked, often overlooked, are in discussions of the post-war urban crisis. When we discuss housing projects and the rise of neighborhood blight in Midwestern cities after World War II. We don't often hear about what you refer to in your book as hillbilly ghettos. Yeah, this was really one of the most eye-opening things that I encountered in my research. Um, you know, I think there is a conventional understanding that even extends into, you know, scholarship, historical scholarship, not just popular understandings, which thinks of the post-war urban crisis and understands it and the kind of conditions in inner city ghettos in exclusively black and maybe black and brown terms that the that the post-war ghetto was um, was um, singularly involved populations of poor um, black migrants to the city. But at the moment, what was really striking to me, especially in these cities in the Midwest that were along the Hillbilly Highway, is that many uh, city leaders of one kind or another, the media journalists and others are spending as much time talking about hillbilly ghettos, these sort of enclaves of poor white Southerners that are clustering in um, urban neighborhoods, declining urban neighborhoods, as they are the black ghetto. Um, and there's this fascinating moment in the 50s and early 60s where municipal officials and social service professionals and liberal policymakers are trying to figure out sort of what to do about the, 
the problem of the ghetto in in post-war American cities. And they're really seeing that as a as a as a as a area populated by um, black migrants and Puerto Rican migrants and Mexican migrants and poor white Southerners. Your book, Hillbilly Highway, uh, is uh, the, the title is drawn from, gained some inspiration from a 1986 song from uh, Steve Earle. I want to talk a little bit about culture and the imprints that these 8 million or so Southern migrants left from music to food to politics to wherever you want to take this in the, the, the final few minutes of our conversation. Um, but let's start with the song. How did it inspire or influence your, your research and your framing of this topic? I love that song because it captures in particularly um, evocative and compelling ways the experience sort of suspended between a kind of um, mobility and opportunity of this migration and the marginalization um, that so many people encountered on that ex- on that migration, the sort of perennial experience of uh, being on the road, um, hustling to find uh, a way to make a living. Um, and I think Earl's song captures that really well. of songs, country music songs, once you start uh, looking uh, that reference in more or less direct ways, this sort of massive migration, it's not beside the point that um, in its origins, country music was often referred to as hillbilly music. They learned reading, writing, Route 23 to job, laid they didn't know that that old highway lead them to a world of misery. Have you ever been down Kentucky Way, say South Prestonsburg? Have you ever been up in Holler? Have you ever I think the Hillbilly Highway says something about a kind of ongoing kind of experience of kind of cultural marginalization and alienation of the sort of white, poor, and working classes from the uh, main stream of American political life, or or maybe what I really mean um, is the mainstream of political liberalism. What I try to do in this book is Um, uncover the long history of that in part so we can try to have a different kind of conversation in this moment. I think there are lessons to be learned from the Hillbilly Highway uh, and the the multiple ways in which that term hillbilly has been used throughout 
20th century American history that that shed light on uh, the political moment we're in now and um, hopefully can point a way forward to a different kind of politics than the one um, that has uh, consumed a large part of the Upper South and and the deindustrializing Midwest uh, over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Max Fraser is a scholar of American labor, cultural, and political history. He teaches at the University of Miami and is the author of Hillbilly Highway, recently on shelves and available for your online carts. Max, thanks for joining us here on Do South. Uh, thanks for having me. It was real fun talking to you. Keep on a shining Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. blue moon This conversation was produced by Stacia Brown. Cole Del Charco and Rachel McCarthy are also producers here on Due South. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. For Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tiberi, reminding you to find past shows at DoSouthRadio.org. We'll talk to you again tomorrow at 10. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue.